Okay, just by way of announcements, um, the church picnic is coming up on the 22nd, and that starts around 11.30 a.m. on the that uh, Saturday morning and goes to about 3 o'clock out at Orlando's house in Pattison, Texas. We have information, be I think, on the website as well as here uh, as to how to get out there and directions to how to get out there. And you, what? Okay, it's in the announcements that have been sent out. Um, and remember to bring chairs and bug spray, things like that. Okay? And, um, you know, again, I've just heard good reports on the, the uh, events that went on out at the uh, uh, county fair in uh, Fort Bend County, good training for... Um, Good training for evangelism. Uh, before we get started, one prayer request or just an update as to what's going on in Ukraine. Uh, most of you are probably watching the news, and there have been heavy uh, missile attacks on Lviv. Now, for those of you who are geographically challenged, uh, Poland is on the northwest border and slightly west border of Ukraine, and Lviv is 40 miles inside that border. So that's very close to Poland. Krakow, where Jim is right now, is about 50, 60, 70 miles maybe uh, inside of Poland. Uh, his plan, which I don't, I, has probably been revised, but his original plan was to go to Lviv and visit our people who were there this coming weekend. But uh, I talked to Eager today. They only had an hour of electricity. Jatomer was hit hard yesterday, not today. Uh, Kiev was hit hard yesterday. Jim told me uh, yesterday that, uh, uh, or maybe this was in his in his prayer letter he sent out that he talked to Oleg and uh, Oleg looked pretty grim. It was it was a hard day for uh, and and Yulia, Yulia and probably Matthew spent five hours in a bomb shelter in Jatomer yesterday. So we need to be praying for all of our folks that are there and their planning and procedures. Uh, uh, I emailed Jim because he's having not getting not necessarily getting all the information, but Eager said that the lines trying to exit Ukraine to Poland right now are about as bad as they were back in February and March. So uh, uh, that that all, all that has to be taken into account. So we need to pray for pray for those people. And, and continue to pray for that situation. Um, it, a lot of people thought, well, they, that it looked like things might be over, but it ain't over till the fat lady sings and goes home. Okay? And it's going to take a while before Putin goes home. And, um, I mean, the ultimate eternal one. And until he's gone home somewhere, I think it's going to continue for a long time. So we need to be in pray, prayer, for, prayer for them. So trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness." Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever." So before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer so we can make sure we're in right relationship with the Lord, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, I am just so thankful that we can come together, we can have confidence we can have peace and stability in our souls, even though at the same time we're concerned for our loved ones, our friends, 
uh, missionaries that are in Ukraine. And, Father, we pray for their safety. We pray that you would comfort them, especially little Matthew, as he's difficult for a child in the midst of a war to understand what's going on. And, and uh, Father, the promises that uh, they're having him memorize, we just pray that you'll make them very real to him. Father, we pray, too, for our other missionaries, uh, for the Perkins in Tahiti. We pray for Mark Musser. I don't know where Mark is right now. He wasn't in, in Kiev last week, so I pray he's out. And uh, keep them safe and uh, provide for them. And, Father, we just uh, know that there are others with uh, Village Ministries and uh, others like Dan Hill who are working in other ministries, and we pray for them. We pray for the pastors that we know that are sick. Uh, many of them uh, are older, and some have been forced to retire because of that. We pray for John Page and for Herman Maddox, and we pray for Paul Schmidt-Bleicher, these guys who have faithfully served you and still, as they can, attempt to, but others have not been able to because of their health. So, Father, we pray you would comfort them. Father, we pray that you would strengthen us as a congregation, that we might stand firm that we might be a faithful witness and testimony to the power of your word. And tonight, as we study, help us to think and to understand these ideas that have so significantly impacted the world around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It has almost become a truism. I don't know why I started coughing all of a sudden. It airs bad lots of pollen. <clears throat> But ideas are important. Ideas have consequences. Good ideas have good consequences, and bad ideas have bad consequences. And ultimately, or not quite ultimately, it is the ideas that people have that shape our lives, that shape our cultures, that shape our civilization. From whence do those ideas come? And how do they come and how do they develop? That's, that's important to understand. It gets pretty abstract. And if you go to university somewhere and you have a professor that, uh, that gets into some levels like this, as I did, but if they're not coming at it from a biblical perspective, then you're going to get a distorted view of the history of ideas. And I wasn't even aware that there was a whole branch of, of the study of history called the history of ideas until I was in my uh, first first beginning weeks of the first semester of seminary, and I knew of a man who uh, had graduated from Dallas Bible College the year before, and he was going to go to, uh, I think it was the University of Texas in Dallas, and where they had a program on the history of ideas. But mo most people think that's pretty abstract and not basically relevant to their lives. But if you have two ears with a brain between them, you have ideas. Where do those ideas come from? How have they developed? You have learned those ideas from others. You were not born with those ideas in your head. Where did those come from? What were the influences upon the people who put those ideas in your head? What were the influences on those people that put the ideas in their heads? And you can just trace that back from century to century and generation to generation until you get back into the Reformation and then the Middle Ages, and then you get back into the uh, early church age and the period of the G Roman Empire, and before that, the period of the Greeks and the Greek philosophers, and before that, you go back to the ancient Babylonians and the ancient Egyptians and, and their ideas. And these ideas basically don't change. They morph. They take on new attributes and maybe new terminology, and they get a new set of clothes, but they're basically the same ideas. I think the writer of Ecclesiastes would uh, categorize that as, there's, as part of there's nothing new under the sun. And yet most of us, most people in American culture who've been educated in the last 50 to 75 years have not been taught any of this. And they are what some have referred to as the under-informed. 
and the uninformed. They're, they're not stupid. They're just ignorant. And it's worse than ignorant because they think they know a lot, but they know nothing. But they have adopted ideas that conform to the that which justifies and validates the trends and lust patterns of their sin nature. And that's basically the kind of thing that I'm talking about here because we see this worked out in flesh in our study of Judges, that everyone did what was right in their own eyes, and that was first penned sometime around 1,000 or 1100 BC, and now it's 2100 AD. So we're talking 32, 3300 years ago. The writer of Judges wrote Judges around the theme that everyone is a moral relativist. He didn't use those words. They're a moral relativist, they're a spiritual relativist. And that is what he was saying. And he shows how that impacted the culture of the time. And it boils down to religion. So tonight we're looking at what I ended with last time on the chain of being. Now, you probably will never again hear somebody talk about this. Charlie Clough, I think, was the first to introduce me to the idea. And then in 2000, I gave a paper that was about 45 pages long at the Conservative Theological Society meeting, and a lot of the men that were there had not really understood this terminology before. Uh, And it's important because it is embedded in the history, the pagan history, let's say, pagan side of the history of Western civilization. And it all but disappeared uh, with Christianity, but it has come back in the last 250 years with a vengeance. And it has different terminology. It's been given a scientific rationale, but it's still the same old chain of being in many, many ways. And so this is really what undergirds the false systems of theology and the idolatrous systems that surrounded Israel in the in the ancient world, and it is at the root of the thinking of the of our modern paganism in Western civilization that is grounded in evolutionary materialism, and I don't know of a better way to way to put it than that. And so I have always said that ultimately the history of the idea of God will shape the history of the world. The most fundamental thing is what people think about God because that will determine what they think about human beings. And what you think about God it is, will shape the rest of your thinking. That is the most important and the most fundamental idea. And in a philosophical sense, the term that they use to think about ultimate reality is the term metaphysics or ontology. And that's really what we're talking about with this idea of the chain of being or continuity of being. Being is the the to be verb. And in Greek, the to be verb is ontos. It's a me and, and it's participial form ontos. So that's where you get the word ontology. Ontos plus logos, the study of ontos, the study of existence, the study of being. And so that right away, some people are already saying, time to go to commercial break. It's getting a little too heavy. All right, so we're going to look at Scripture. And I did a lot of studying and reading over the last uh, couple of weeks dealing with issues related to ancient Near Eastern religions. And it's very confusing. It is often sounds like we've simplified it because if we talk to get too much beneath the surface, it gets real confusing because we found a number of ancient uh, manuscripts in different locations. Um, for example, uh, you have some things that were found up in Ugarit, which is in Syria now. It's an archaeological dig. It was northwestern Canaan, 
uh, would be considered part of northwestern Canaan, and they spoke a northwestern Canaanite or Semitic dialect in the ancient world. And so they'll have these origin myths and other myths in which they look at, they talk about Baal, but it's a little different than maybe the way Baal is presented by the Phoenicians. And um, they'll talk about Ashtoreth, and that's related to the name Astarte, but in in some of the uh, literature, it seems like Astarte and Anath, who is the female war goddess, almost become the same person, and then it, by the in other parts of the same document, they're different. So it gets real confusing trying to parse all of this out. And uh, but one thing that, as I read through a couple of uh, a couple of good, really important an- analyses over the last couple of weeks, it reinforced in my mind at least that when the writer of Judges says that they enslaved themselves to the Baal, Baals and the Asherahs, that that's that he's using those in very generic terms because th- th- you have so many different Baals in different regions and different towns and different cities, so they'll have the name Baal su- hyphen something, and so it's the Baal of that town or that vicinity. And the same thing, same thing with the Astros. So um, he's u- the writer is using this phrase to refer to all of these fertility religions these nature religions, which is, uh, aside from Yahwism, the worship of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, everything else is really part of a, you're worshiping the creature, the creation, rather than the creator. That's one reason I have been working to refrain from ever using the term nature. Well, in nature we see, no, in God's creation we see, because nature acts as if the uh, the creation is autonomous it's natural and cre- and god's creation is not nat- natural it is a cre- it's the result of his supernatural power and when we use the word nature a lot of people say well nature does this and nature does that uh, almost like they're personifying nature or and which is what you would see coming out of a nature cult the worship of these fertility deities. The same thing when you hear people make statements related to, well, the universe just didn't want me to do that, things like that. So you're personifying God's creation, and basically that kind of language is consistent with nature worship, and it's not consistent with biblical worship. So we have this, these, these nature gods, these, the worship of the creation, and they take different shapes and forms and names in Syria, in Sidon, in Moab, in Ammon, and Philistines. But they just sort of change their costume, change the name, but they're still doing the same kind of things and performing uh, human sacrifices and the sacrifice of children to some of these uh, to some of these deities. And the reason I'm, I'm sort of taking off from this because what, what's behind this is this idea of what came to be called the continuity of being or the chain of being, which is still present today. It has different manifestations, but it helps us to spot these worldview differences. And there's really only two worldviews. There is the view that accords with God. We call it the Judeo-Christian worldview, a theistic worldview. We call it a, I prefer a biblical worldview, or we have a non-biblical worldview. That's, that's it. You either have divine viewpoint or human viewpoint, another way to look at it. You either have biblical th- thinking or you have pagan thinking. That's it. There's no other alternative. There's no middle ground. There is there there are a lot of biblical ideas that are borrowed and used over by the, those who are pagan. Otherwise, they would completely collapse. They have to borrow uh, marriage. They have to, and then they screw it up. And then they have to borrow certain basic ideas related to uh, economy. Just like no matter how much you may uh, deny that there's uh, natural laws like gravity, you still live on the basis of it whether you like it or not. 
Um, you can fantasize that you're a man when you don't have the right equipment or the right chromosomes, and you'll never truly be a man if you are born a biological woman. And no matter how much you fantasize that you're something else, the only thing you're doing is creating mental and emotional instability and destroying yourself, creating a lot of self-induced misery. So we need to understand this. It all comes under that category of, of, of worldview. So what was so bad about what they were doing? Well, they weren't learning their lesson. They continued to rebel, no sign of repentance. I know that's never happened to anybody here. Uh, we keep lear- seem to keep learning the same lessons over and over again. And in a sense, it's a, just we can reach that point where we just abuse the grace of God and use it like a license. And hopefully we don't get that far. By con- third, by continuing to be involved with the fertility religions of the ancient world, they were destroying their own culture, their own society, and eradicating the freedoms that God had provided for them. And ultimately, they are rejecting the creator-creature distinction. And that's fundamental to understanding several other things that we'll be getting to in the Ephesians study and also as we go forward in the, in the Judges sto- story. And there's some things in i've read through a lot of articles related to some of these things and uh, sometimes i wish theologians wouldn't do this but the, the vocabulary is there they get off into a lot of technical philosophical vocabulary and if you don't have that kind of a background then you're, you can be kind of lost and i'm trying to avoid that as i go forward but some of it we just have to learn and the fifth point i said was that this becomes clear when we understand what is going on with their gods the gods of these various uh, surrounding countries, Aram, Sidon, Moab, Ammon, and the Philistines. They abandoned God. So at the root of this is the rejection of the creator-creature distinction. Romans 1, to 25, the key verse being 25, they exchanged the truth. Now, I want you to remember this because we're talking about uh, rejecting or having put off the lie in Ephesians 5. Well, this is a statement about they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Now, the article there in, in, in Greek, there's about 10 different ways that, a, uh, that an article is used in a, to, to modify a word in, in Greek. And there are ways that, in many ways, where a noun is still a definite noun in Greek, even if it doesn't have an article. But what this is doing is it is at least identifying a particular noun, which is truth, and, and specifying it. But there's also a term that, in a way in which it's used, where it is really um, ref- throwing your attention to something that's about to be said. And that's called a cataphoric noun. Now, you won't remember that in three seconds, but that's what it's called, and it's different from an anaphoric. You've heard that before. I know some of you have heard it a lot. Um, and an anaphoric noun, will, will, it will be, an uh, article will be used because it's taking you to a previous reference. What this is doing is taking you to something that's coming. It's a preview of coming attractions. They're exchanging the truth of God for the lie. Now, we'll come back to this later. So that's just your introduction to that concept. And what they do as a result of exchanging this body of truth about God uh, and exchanging it, they were, end up worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator. That's where we get the terminology creator-creation or creator-creature distinction but uh, King James translated the word creature, but it really is creation, that God is distinct from his creation. You have these uh, various passages we've talked about uh, related to the idolatry, how they passed uh, through the fire, their children, and they practiced divination and enchantments. That's talking about God's people, Israel. Uh, the uh, Judges 16.23 talks about uh, the sacrifices to Dagon uh, of the Philistines. First uh, Kings 11.5 talks about uh, Ashtoreth again, the goddess of the Sidonians, Milcom, the abomination of the Amorites, 
Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon, because all of those were were worshipped through child sacrifice. And Deuteronomy 32.16, now I've retranslated this. I got into the Hebrew and I said, okay, there's a lot here that needs to be clarified. Verse 16, they made him jealous with strange things. Now what you have in New King James is strange gods, but gods isn't in the text. It's just strange things. Um, they, they made him jealous with strange things, with abhorrent things, they provoked him to anger. Now, we find out what these strange and important things are in the context. They sacrifice to demons, not to God. So what they're making God jealous with uh, in the terms of these strange things are the idols they're worshiping. So contextually, that, that defines it. So it's not like it's wrong the way it's translated, just that those words aren't there. They sacrifice to demons, not to God. So when all of those... Gods and goddesses you studied in mythology, in Roman mythology and Greek mythology, those were simply personifications of demons. Now think about that. Think about how that's being transformed into a whole movie industry with the advance of Marvel comics and how that relates and then we get a definition of because of, because they sacrifice to demons and not to God, but it's not Elohim, it's not the plural, it's Eloah, which is a singular. So it's identifying this God it, it will be defined as as the Rock and as Yahweh in verse nineteen. So they sacrifice to demons, not to Eloah, to gods, Elohim whom they have not known, new things that came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. Of the rock who begot you, you are unmindful and have forgotten the God, and there it's just El, it's not Elohim, El, who fathered you. And when Yahweh saw it, he spurned them because of the provocation of his sons and his daughters, because they've gotten into demonism. Ultimately, demonism and the thinking of Satan is what lies behind all all false religions, all religions are false other than Christianity, and philosophies. It's all product of Satan's attempt to counterfeit and to provide some sort of meaning and purpose and value to life apart from the Word of God. Deuteronomy 32.20, he, uh, he, that is, the Lord said, I will hide my face from them, an anthropomorphism, that he is going to uh, not bless them. I will see what their end will be, for they are a perverse generation, children in whom is no faith. Verse 21, they have provoked me to jealousy by what is not God, not El. They have moved me to anger by their foolish idols. So the not El here equals foolish idols, and those idols are the strange things and the abhorrent things and they are the demons, actually. So you have to just sort of read the whole context to understand the uh, vague terminology by the more precise. Psalm 96.5, for all the gods, that is the Elohim. Here it's a term. I know Scott on Sunday morning talked about Psalm 82 and how Elohim in some passages can refer to human leaders. But here it also refers to the uh angelic host. It can refer to fallen angels as well as the elect angels. For all the gods of the peoples are idols. So all the gods, the Elohim, the mythological gods are idols. But Yahweh made the heavens. Notice that contrast. That's the creator-creation distinction. Yahweh made the heavens. And what we're looking at here is that the gods of the people don't create ex nihilo out of nothing. They, they, they do not make the heavens. Because when you start looking at these myths, which is what we did a little bit last time, we're going to do a little bit more tonight, you know, they're, they're making things out of the body parts of other gods that they destroy. Or there, there's a lot of gross things that they also do that I'm not going into because of the, it's a mixed audience and there may be children listening, but it gets really, really perverse. 1 Corinthians 10, 20 and 21, 
uh, I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons. Now he's in, he's writing to Corinth. They're worshiping all the pantheon of the of the of the Gentiles in Corinth. They have temples to Jupiter or, or to Zeus, and they have uh, temples to uh, Athena and all of these things. So they're, he's saying right out, they're worshiping demons. So we go back to Judges 10.6, sets this up as these are all of these gods are demons that they are worshiping. And so we have to understand what, where does this come from and, and understand that this is just as prevalent today in more sophisticated forms than it was then. It, it's no better. In some cases, I, no, I don't think it's worse. I had an interesting conversation with somebody not too long ago and and the more that I studied this, the more I realized they were having celebratory festivals in the town square where they set up these idols to Milcom and Chemosh and were burning their children alive in the flames and having a celebration about it. We aren't there yet. Some people in our culture are, are there or beyond, but overall we're not but it's not far away. So we, we've looked at these different gods and goddesses, uh, Chemosh, Molech, I'm just going to skip ahead. And then we came to this topic of the great chain of being. And this is really an important topic to, to discuss and to be aware of. And basically what this is talking about is that when you start at the very top where it says being here, ultimate being is God. But in Judeo-Christianity, God is not there. God is over here. He's not part of all of creation. And this is what happens is that there are degrees of being. God has 100%, and you may get down to something that has only a half of a percent. And everything else is, is, is on a scale graduated in between. And so there's differences in goodness. And one of the ways that this manifests itself is so that, that being, ultimate being is what makes God God because he is the uh, eternally existent one. And they'll call that God, okay? That's not the God of the Bible. They just slap that term on it because he's the ultimate good. And everything else has derivative being from him. So they just have less, but being is godness. So where that goes is that that when you talk about people who say, well, there's a divine spark in all of us, where do they get that idea? That comes out of this, this kind of thinking, that there is some element of just the existence and being in all things and the further up the scale you are, the more of it you have and the further away you have. But So that's why you can't go out and hunt and kill animals or fish or and you have to be a vegetarian and you have to be even more careful because uh, that's somewhere down here where plants are on that on that whole scale. So these, this is just one of the uh, more ancient charts and descriptions of this. So... Uh, what is it? What is it? How are we going to uh, how are we going to define this particular concept? It's known sometimes as the continuity of being, because being is continuous through this whole uh, this whole chain, this whole scale. Uh, the things at the bottom have have a little bit of it, and God's at the top, and He's got all of it. So that's that's the idea there. The other term that we'll show, there's uh, ens perfectimus, which is a term that shows up, which is perfect existence. That first word ens is a Latin term meaning being or existence in and of itself. The verb esse, which is the verb to be, to exist. So that's that's what what this is. It's talking about existence. So two things are necessary if you have anything. If you have a hymn book down here, it's got Existence or non-existence? It either exists or it doesn't. For it to be anything more than an idea, it has to have something called existence. And then it has to have certain certain qualities, a whatness. 
So existence is a thatness, it, 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 that it exists or that it doesn't exist. And then it's, it's blue, it's uh, shaped like a rectangular, rectangle, it's blue on the outside, white pages. Those are the various attributes. Aristotle called them accidents. But that's, that's the idea there. It, 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 the fact that it is there, it has some form of existence, some degree of existence. And in this idea, it shares in that with all other things. And so then there's essence or essentia in the Latin, which is the whatness of a being. So the thatness and the whatness. Now, you, we don't think that way normally. So that gets confusing when we have to think like that. But that's, that's how this terminology has, has developed. So this continuity or the scale of being is everything from God at the top to rocks or subatomic particles shares to one degree or another in the same existence or same pr- principle of being. God has it at 100%, a subatomic particle at something uh, less than 1%, but all are part of share in the same beingness, existence, okay? But that's not what the Bible says. God said to Moses, when Moses said, who shall I tell sent me? He says, I am who I am. He is saying, I am the self-existent one. Because the Hebrew verb there is hayah, that's the to be verb in Hebrew. And Yahweh is a form of the to be verb. So he is basically taking that word esef for existence, and except it's the Hebrew word, and he's making that his name. He is the self-existent one. And what does the Bible say about, about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Nehemiah 9, 6 Notice this, and I could have gone on and on and on and on with passages that, that emphasize you alone are the Lord. What makes him the Lord? What makes him distinctive? He made the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, that everything that's in the heavens he made. It is created the earth and everything on it. The host would refer to all the planets, all the stars, everything that's out beyond the earth's atmosphere, and then the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them. You preserve them all. God preserves them. This is a great verse for the environmentalist. Who is it that takes care of the planet? It's not human beings. We, we, we can't destroy the planet like one volcano can. We cannot pollute the planet like one volcano. That doesn't mean we can just go out and trash the place. That's the biblical view is you take care of it. We are stewards of God's creation. But we do not control what happens in nature. God does. He takes care of it. He preserves it. And um, he said the host of heaven. Here that word host is used of the angels, the host of heaven, that phrase refers to the armies. Host is just an antiquated English word for armies. The armies of heaven, the angels worship you. Psalm eighty-three, eighteen, That they may know that you, whose name alone is Yahweh, whose name alone, he is the self-existent one are the most high over all the earth, the creator-creature distinction. For you are great, Psalm 86.10, for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Nothing else shares in your existence because your existence is what? It is kadosh. It's holy. It's one of a kind. O Lord of hosts, Isaiah 37.16, O Yahweh of the armies, God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubs, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. And then one more verse, Isaiah forty four twenty four. thus says Yahweh, your redeemer. So notice the, the connections embedded in this verse with what was said in the other verses. The other verses emphasize God as creator, and here it's God as redeemer. Those are two of the key things for which God is worshipped. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer and he who formed you from the womb, that is talking about Israel, the nation, 
I am Yahweh who makes all things. What is what what is there in knowledge that is not part of all things? All things is all things. Nothing is left out. Who stretches out the heavens all alone, who spreads abroad the earth by myself. So that takes us over to what we were studying in Ephesians 4.25. For this reason, because you've already put off the lie. It's not translated correctly, I don't think, in hardly anything. It is the lie. It's not a participle or gerund like it's translated. Uh, Let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor. Truth is contrast to the lie. So truth here refers to the Word of God, the teaching of Scripture, the instruction of Scripture, the doctrine of Scripture. That's what we're to be speaking. It's not saying tell the truth to your neighbor. It's saying speak the truth that is the that which is derived from and conforms to the word of God with your neighbor. For we are members of one another. So neighbor in this context, he defines, he's using it to refer to another believer. So truth is from the scripture. The lie is the devil's worldview which denies the creator-creature distinction autonomy and independence of the creature and antagonism towards God. I've often talked about cosmic thinking as the devil's thinking, and it relates to independence from God. He wants to be independent from God. Autonomy and and arrogance are one thing, and then it's antagonistic toward God. So this is the creator-creature distinction. Now, I got this chart out of the, uh, I mentioned this the last time, the Interlocked series uh, that's 56 Lessons that was put together by Amos and Jen Kwok, who are from Singapore, and they've done a magnificent job of it. And it, it is not the framework series. It's based on the framework series, and it's condensed and abridged so that it is for teaching teenagers. And there are some adults who probably need to start, go through their 55, 56 lessons, and then go to the framework series. Because Char- Char- Charlie's Charlie gets like like I've been talking about creator creature and everything. Charlie talks about lots of stuff that goes far beyond what you would put in a curriculum for high school kids. So people need to do both of those things if they're if they're really basic, brand new believers. It's a good place to start. So th- that's what Satan's ba- fall was basically. He denied the creator-creature distinction, and he wanted to be like God. That's what this chart is. The shining stars, I think they, they did a good job um, trying to translate Halal bin Shahar. It's not Lucifer. That came out of the Latin translation. But Halal bin Shahar is Halal is the bright morning star, son of the morning. So that was a good way to translate that. He's, Satan's was called the shining star, and he wanted to be God. So we looked at that. The lie is grounded on this rejection of the creator-creature distinction in Isaiah 14, also in Isaiah 28:15. And in both of these passages, you're, they're talking about, on the one hand, the human king of Babylon and Tyre, and on the other hand, uh, the demon that is behind them, the supernatural uh, fallen angel uh, spiritual power behind these human kings. And what we'll see as we go forward is that that in all of these systems of false gods, everything begins with chaos and a watery chaos. But there's something that is already existing. So on the scale, as we look at it, the scale, instead of up and down, you have gods on one end, nature on the other, and man is somewhere in the middle, and so people are sliding up and down the scale of the continuity of being. So that's the same thing goes on in Genesis 3, 1 through 5. Satan is saying, and as the serpent, uh, God is a liar. You won't certainly die, but in the day you eat of it, you're gonna, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, denying that. So this is the lie. The lie is grounded on a rejection of the creator-creature or creator-creation distinction. Second, it rejects divine authority in place of creaturely authority, independence from God, autonomy, arrogance. And third, hostility toward God. And I quoted from their stuff last week. It's interlocked. 
with a D, uh, dot online. These phrases, we hear them all the time, and they come out of, they are consistent with a pagan continuity of being uh, language. Ideas like luck, karma, the universe, uh, positive energy, horoscope, the force, all these things we're, we're familiar with, and I'll bring up again. Uh, other phrases, listen to your heart, to your own self, be true, trust your gut, all of these things. So in summary, the pagan worldview is based on a continuity of being, a scale of being or existence from gods to nature. Second, it in always boils down to impersonal fate and chance because the universe is going to be impersonal, isn't it? It's matter. What exists? We were talking the other day. And someone was saying that they were talking to a physicist, and they kept saying, well, what was before that, and what was before that, and what was before that? Finally, he said, well, the best we can do is a photon. A photon is still an immaterial thing. How do you get – I mean, it's a material thing. How do you get something immaterial from something material? You don't. That is why something called dialectical materialism, which is the mechanism of Marxism – it, it fits with with uh, Darwinism. It, it, it ultimately, people are not in the image of God. They are just part of the machinery, and and only as a collective do they have value. Well, that's just the same kind of tyranny that the Pharaoh had in the in the Old Testament and and the and the Caesars. So you have impersonal fate and chance. And ultimate authority itself. So it's a complete rejection and denial of the divine institutions. Re- the, these are the satanic institutions, okay? In impersonal fate and chance, you deny individual and personal responsibility. And with the continuity of being, you deny the immaterial soul, eternal soul nature of mankind, and you reject God and replace him with self. So... The uh, scale of being is identified as a and defined as a hierarchy of static, unchanging forms with God who is. See, you get into Aristotelianism and Platonism, and, and this thing at the top is called being or the unmoved mover, the good or the absolute, and people slap the label God on him. And then because you use God to refer to uh, the one who created the heavens and the earth and the seas and all that is in them, you get confused. But you don't know what that be, that ultimate being is from philosophy. And Cornelius Van Til, who taught apologetics for many years at uh, at Prince, first at Princeton, and then he was one of the five who left Princeton and started Westminster Seminary, and, and, and most students think that he's way over their head, used to say you can't talk about the whatness of something or the thatness of something until you can define the whatness of something. And I scratched my head over that for a long time, and he says, you know, you can't just say God exists because you haven't defined what God is. You know, and everybody's going to pour into that G-O-D word what they think. And, and it may be a, a pantheistic notion. It may be a, uh, a polytheistic notion. You, you just don't know. But you, you can't. That's the problem with these arguments for the existence of God. They don't define God other than as something like this. Like, and that's, that's ultimately what you get is the unmoved mover. But that's what they have at the top is the unmoved mover and then angels, humans, animals, plants down to inanimate objects. That's all the way down here. That's the, that's the scale uh, of being. Arthur Lovejoy wrote one of the best books on the chain of being that the re- last revision came out, I believe, around 76. And he said that, the, it's the that there it's uh, the essential and unbreakable links in the chain. Notice that they're essential and unbreakable links between 
the divine creator. Now, they're reading that in there. There's no content there. Don't read your view of Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, into his term, the divine creator. Because what he's creating has to come out of himself and from himself because it shares in his being. So there's no ex nihilo creation in that concept. But it includes the deity, that's how I would put it, the angelic, heavenly, the human, the animal, the world of plants and vegetation, and the planet Earth itself with its minerals and waters. The image became the basis for calling anything and everything sacred. Next time you're reading something that relates to uh, the environment and environmentalism, think about this. They think everything is sacred, which means everything's part of God for them. It's part of that scale of being. He goes on to say that the scale of being was thus an important social concept that was used to justify many types of social inequality. Why? Because you have less being than somebody else. So again, it's that sliding scale of who's got the greatest amount of that existence thing. He goes on to say the result was the conception of the plan and structure of the world. Okay, so the result of this is it builds out a whole worldview. What the world is, how it's structured, how everything is organized, which through the Middle Ages and down to the late 18th century, many philosophers, most men of science, and indeed most educated men were to accept without question the conception of the universe as a great chain of being composed of an immense or by the strict but seldom rigorously applied logic of the principle of continuity of an infinite number of links ranging in hierarchical order from the meagerest kind of existence, that's not existence, C-E, it's existence, things that exist, which barely escapes non-existence through every possible grade up to the top, which is called, the Latin technical term is ins perfectissimus, which is not God. He just has 100% of being, but you don't know the whatness. You only know the thatness. So how do you know if you don't know the whatness that it's God? I think I duplicated It's composed of, uh, yeah, I duplicated that slide. Okay. When the schoolmen, now that's an antiquated term for referring to the scholastic scholars of the Middle Ages, people like uh, Bonaventure and Albertus Magnus, Albert the Great, uh, Thomas Aquinas, uh, Abelard, all of these, uh, we think of them as Roman Catholic, and and they are and they aren't, uh, depending on who you're talking about. But they are, because that's all you had during the Middle Ages was the one church until the Reformation. And so that's, the, but they are thinking, they're reading, uh, heavily influenced early on by Plato. Neoplatonism is the worldview everybody had to struggle against from about a hundred years after the Bible was written until, uh, about 1100 when, uh, Aristotelian writings were starting to be uh, uh, read in in uh, in, in Europe, uh, and they they are kind of brought in via the Arabs. A- Arabs never invented everything; they just sort of uh, transmitted it from earlier peoples to later peoples. So, uh, when the what the schoolmen called the ends perfectissimum the summit of the hierarchy of being, the ultimate and only completely satisfying object of contemplation and adoration. See, that's pure, gets into pure mysticism. So, you know, this, this gets in, when I've talked about the iceberg illustration and ultimate being is metaphysics and what comes next is knowledge. Well, your conception of what the ultimate being is is going to affect your view of knowledge and where you ultimately get knowledge, either from divine revelation or it's myst- or mysticism or empiricism. And so there, the, the, the God of Plato is going to be uh, mysticism. Um, 
there can be little doubt that the idea of the good was the God of Plato, and there can be none that it became, the, uh, and there can be no doubt that it became the God of Aristotle, and one of the elements or aspects of the God of most of the philosophic theologies of the Middle Ages and of nearly all the modern Platonizing poets and ph- philosophers. It, the point you need to understand is this influence anything and everything to some degree or another that's written in the Middle Ages, even among Christian theologians, because a lot of them are being influenced by Plato or Aristotle. So this is one drawing of it. Here you have uh, God at the top and surrounded by angels, and you have different levels of angels, and then the creation and mankind all the way down to the bottom. So those are just some of the ways they do it. So here we have the great chain of being on the left in this one uh, picture. And notice it has the word ends here that you can pick out and uh, some of the others. hard for me to read it. But it's the great chain of being. So you have God and angels, heaven, humans, bees, plants, flame, and rocks. Well, over here you have Darwin, and Darwin comes along with what? He's got his scale of, of life forms. It's the same thing. He just took it and gave it scientific structure and scientific, modern scientific names. But it's basically the same thing that goes back far earlier than, than even Aristotle and, and Plato. Rushton, he says, apart from biblically governed thought, the, pre- the prevailing concept of being has been that being, existence, is one and continuous. He's talking about the scale of being. Apart from biblically governed thought, apart from those who are influenced by the Judeo-Christian worldview of a creator-creature distinction, the prevailing concept of continuous being has been everywhere. God or the gods, man and the universe are all aspects of one continuous being. Degrees of being may exist so that a hierarchy of gods as well as a hierarchy of men can be described, but all consist of one undivided and continuous being. We're all part of everything and part of God. So God is in all of us. So everybody has a little spark of divinity, so God's going to bring everybody to heaven. See where this language comes from. That you, you hear the popular version on the street, but this is where it, it has these ideas have de- derived historically. He says, um, the creation of any new aspect of being is not, thus not a creation out of nothing, but a creation out of being. So God creates out of himself. He doesn't create ex nihilo. So we're all part of God. That's fundamental to understanding the, the nonsense that's going on in the world today. This is where these ideas derive. Both gods and men developed or evolved out of the original chaos of being. How do you get order out of chaos? I don't know how many billions of eons you add. Time plus chance is not going to create order. It goes on, chaos or darkness generates life in all of these views. It is both the source of life and the enemy of life. Chaos and life are thus in a necessary tension. And then we have Darwin in his less well-known book, The Ascent of Man, which pegs him as a rank racist. He says, at some future period, not very distant as measured by centuries, the civilized races of man will almost certainly and exterminate and replace the savage races throughout the world. Guess what skin color the civilized races have and what skin color the savage races have, okay? This guy is a rank racist. At the same time, the anthropomorphous apes will no doubt be exterminated. The break between man and his nearest allies will then be wider for it will intervene between man in a more civilized state, as we may hope, even than the Caucasian, and some ape as low as a baboon instead of is now between the Negro or Australian and the gorilla. It's all part of the chain of being. So there we have it. God at the top, a God ultimate good, 
angelic or spirit beings, human beings, animals, vegetation, rocks, dirt, water, astronomical, geographical. That's it. This is the the pyramid is being itself, raw existence. God has the most of it. The rest is less. That's what all these things have. Alexander Pope, in a essay on man, well-known poet, turn of the century, even writes about this in his essay on man. Vast chain of being, which from God began. No, he didn't. Not from God. God created it from nothing. Nature's ethereal human Angel, man, beast, bird, fish, insect. What no eye can see. See, that's at the bottom end of the spectrum. Free, free thee to nothing. On superior powers were we to press. Inferior might on, uh, inferior might on our, or in the full creation, leave a void. Where, one step broken, the great scales destroyed from nature's chain Whatever link you strike, tenth or ten thousandths breaks the chain alike. What we see here is the historical reality of Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God, that is the justice of God on the human race, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, and I don't think there should be a comma there, against men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. This word suppress is the Greek verb katecho, which echo rather, and it is uh, it has the meaning of uh, preventing the doing of something or, ca- or, or to cause it to be ineffective. So suppressing the truth is to prevent the truth. Notice it's the truth, to prevent the truth, to suppress it. Uh, second, to adhere firmly to traditions, convictions, or beliefs, to hold or hold fast to something. Third, it means to keep something in one, one's possession or uh, to possess it. Uh, fourth, it has the meaning of to keep within limits in a confining manner. So they suppress or confine or restrict the truth. They hide it. They bury it deep within the lower subterranean uh, basements of their mind. Lock the door, put lots of chains on it to keep God from getting out, but he rattles the chains a lot. Because what may be known of God, this is why God can justly punish him, what may be known of God. See, when I said earlier, suppress the truth that that article, the throws us, what is the truth we're asking at this point? The truth is what's, the truth is what's going to be stated in the next verse. The truth is what may be known about God. So that's what is being suppressed. The knowledge about God, because A, it is manifest in them. That is, it's inside their brains and they know it. There's not a single atheist in the universe, in the history of man, that doesn't know that God exists deep down in the lower basements of his mind. Why? Because God has shown it to them. It's been manifest in them, and he has shown it externally to them. Well, how can you say that? Well, the answer is explained with the 4 of verse 20. For since the creation of the world... His, that is God's, invisible attributes are seen. We see the invisible. We see in, in the results of what he made. And it's understood. Notice what may be known of God in the first verse. God shows it to them externally, empiricism. It's clearly seen and understood. Another word about knowledge. Uh, by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, and it's so clear they're without excuse. They can complain all day long, well, you just didn't give me enough evidence, God. But when God stands, or they stand before God like Isaiah did, they're not going to say that. They're going to be crushed internally because you can't hide from from the truth of God. Romans 121, because although they knew God, 
See, there's another word. They understood it. It was manifest in them, and they knew God. They did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. We have the biggest bunch of ingrates in the in history in this nation. They rejected God. They become futile in their thoughts. Their foolish hearts are darkened. Professing to be wise, they become fools and changed or exchanged or change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. They create idols. Therefore, God also gave them up to their uncleanness and the lust of their heart to dishonor their bodies among themselves. Notice it's physical. They dishonored their own bodies. Maybe tattoos. Certain piercings, you know, tattoos were prohibited in the Mosaic law. I'm not saying that's true for today, but there's a reason for that. And that is because the glorification of the physical body was created. You can trace it back. When I was in Connecticut, they had a huge exhibit of body art at uh, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I didn't make it, but I bought the book. And in the opening part of it, it was very interesting. It was worth the price of 40 bucks or whatever I paid for that. It was outrageous. But, you know, sometimes you have to pay 40 bucks for a good idea. And in the, uh, and this, this scholar who's writing on the history of body art says that it goes back to the ancient Egyptians who knew that in their view of the afterlife, the only glory they would have in the afterlife was that which they took with them. So they had to glorify their body now. In contrast, he didn't say this, I'm saying it. In contrast, in Christianity, we don't need to glorify our bodies today because God is going to glorify them when we are resurrected and get our glorified body. So they dishonor their bodies among themselves and they exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. See, that's those same words that are used over in the Old Testament. So I'm going to stop here before we get into our chart, charting this out. That'll be a good place to start next time. A lot of review because, you know, I, I studied this a lot usually about a decade or two apart. And I know some of you have heard this before. Some people may say, well, I've heard Robbie teach this before. Well, Robbie has to go back and reread everything he read and studied and wrote on it 20 years ago to get it back in his head. And I've learned more, th- I've learned things or realized things or understood things perhaps more clearly than I did before. Knowledge is an in- interesting thing as we learn and we grow, we forget, we relearn and learn it better. And it applies in different ways. So uh, we'll be back next time, and we'll go a little further in our understanding of this before we get back into the text. But it is not, don't say, well, you know, then we'll go back to the text and we get into the Word, and that's wonderful. Yes, but if you in the mental baggage of our brains where we have categories and concepts and facts and data, when we get to some other things coming up in Jephthah and in Samson and in Ephesians 4 and 5, we're going to come back to the creator-creature distinction. And that's why we're taking our time to really develop it and understand it now because it becomes found part of the mental furniture that informs what is being said in the text in many places. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and pray that as we think about these things, we just realize that, that the world around us is just, just absolutely ornamented with hostility toward you and with the ideas that are the consequence of their rejection of you. And it's important for us at some level to understand these ideas and to see their history and their influence because at times they have influenced our thinking and our understanding. So, Father, we pray that you would help us to expose the human viewpoint and paganism and uh, the ungodly ideas that have penetrated our soul so that we can flush them out. 
and so that we can be conformed to the image of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.